0: Mike Miller, would you come on up? Okay. Here we continue this week with the second and the three-week installment of Mike's lessons, and Mike, as always, is prepared and ready to give us a really insightful and thorough. And I do intend to get through at least a part of that uh, in my time this morning. Um, I want to say a word of appreciation for the fact that Malone and Charlotte are here. I always enjoy teaching when I've got Malone in front of me. <laughs> Especially when I've got him in a place where he can't get out very easily. <laughs> oh boy, uh, we're off to the races this morning, huh? Um, I thought uh, during uh, some of the questions that were raised last week, I I might ask you to indulge me in a moment of show and tell this morning. Uh, Some of the questions had to do with the origin of the biblical text. And I said the word Masoretic text, and I saw some eyes glaze over, so I thought maybe I would bring a, bring a copy of the Masoretic text, the real Bible. This is the real Bible, in case you have never seen one of them before. And uh, you're welcome to come up afterwards and take a look at it. It is the Biblia Hebraica, meaning it's the Hebrew Bible. It is what we call the Old Testament. It is a standard edition of the Old Testament. Much of what I said last week had to do with where the Bible came from and how it came into being, and the Bible that I wanted to talk about when I talked about the Bible as God's drama for this creation, the four acts of God's drama for this creation. And it occurs to me that uh, some of you might not realize that there was a lot going on in Jerusalem in the first century of our era, that is from zero to a 100 AD than simply the rise of Christianity, Christ's ministry is crucifixion, death, and resurrection. Of course that was all going on, but in Judaism, there was a significant amount going on too. The final pair of the great rabbis of the tradition that extended all the way back to the exile in Babylon had schools in Jerusalem, the schools of Hillel and Shammai. And uh, you probably don't recognize those names, but Hillel was the uh, teacher of Gamaliel under whose feet Paul sat in Jerusalem. And those two schools were busy doing something that had not been done before in Judaism. They were re- bringing the oral tradition into written form in what would ultimately become the Talmud. All right. Now, I told you last week that the books of our Old Testament were not chosen until 90 AD after the fall of Jerusalem and in the face of the division between the synagogue and the church because the church was recognizing some books that as part of their tradition that the the Jews did not want recognized, namely the Gospels and, and the writings of Paul the Christian writings and the split between the synagogue and the church led to the Jews doing something that people do only in crisis and that is to decide what is the authoritative writings under which we will live or what are the authoritative writings under which we will live so they selected the books the 39 books that are in our Protestant and I emphasize that Protestant Old Testament and our Protestant tradition goes back to that uh, work at Yamnia in 90 AD uh, through Martin Luther, who said we ought to go in the process of the Reformation, said that we ought to go back to the roots of our forebears and recognize only those books as authoritative over us in what we call the Old Testament, which I prefer to call Hebrew Scriptures, as the ones that the Hebrews themselves chose in 90 AD. Now, there's some good philosophical arguments against that since the Bible that Paul recognized has some Greek writings in it, but nowhere in the New Testament are any of, the, any of the books of the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha, and I just used another word, that's a group of Jewish writings which are pretty remote, referred to except for one notation in the little book of Jude, where Jude refers to the book of Enoch which is part of the pseudepigrapha. Now, one of the things that you do when you decide that these books are going to be authoritative for us is to decide, well, what what is the text of those books? Now, up until this point in time, there were lots of copies of the texts of the different books floating around. But there arose again in that first century a group of... I'll call them secretaries, for want of a better word, or scribes, if you want want that word, called the Masoretes, Mm -hmm. who undertook the task of determining what the authorized text of the Hebrew Bible was. Mm -hmm. They had a problem, because up until that point in time, Hebrew had been written only in consonants, 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet, and they and they didn't bother to write the the vowels in. And you may look at me and say, wow, how do you know what what the words are if all you have in front of you is consonants?" Well, trust me, it's not too difficult. If you were to go to Israel today, and one of the things that modern Israel has done is revive biblical Hebrew as a living language, and you were to pick up a a Hebrew (laughs) newspaper, you would be looking at a vowelist text. They don't bother to print the vowels in the Hebrew newspapers, eh? And the Jews and those who know Hebrew real well can read those texts just fine without vowels. But, of course, it doesn't make any difference if the vowels are different or if they misunderstand or, if uh, you know, in the newspaper, but it did in here. So the Masoretes, amongst other things that they did, was uh, begin to create a system for indicating what the vowels were. Now, I'm going to go say one or two more sentences. <laughs> uh, maybe, it'll be, uh, maybe three, allow me three or four. <laughs> <laughs> Out of all of this work, and if you... Uh, I know you can't see this very well from back and back in the back, but you can see that it doesn't look a lot like this. And by the way, it begins at the end. I trust you know that. The 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 Hebrews uh, the Hebrew alphabet or Hebrew writing reads from right to left rather than left to right. I was talking with uh, one person in the class, and I won't identify by name because I don't want to embarrass him before, and I explained to him why it was that uh, the Hebrew alphabet... And the Hebrew writing goes from right to left, rather and left to right. And it was explained to me by a rabbi who was uh, instructing a group of contramands whom I had taken through the synagogue. And one of my bright contramands, this was in Malden, Massachusetts, incidentally— one of my bright contramands asked him, "Why do you people write backwards?" <laughs> 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 and the good rabbi—I even remember his name, Judah Miller. No relation that I know. Of. <laughs> Uh, Judah Miller said "Looked at uh, my cover and he said Sonny, uh, you write backward, we don't (laughs) (laughs) and he went on to explain that uh, when Hebrew was reduced to writing probably sometime in the era of, well we don't know for sure, 750 to 500 years before Christ we think maybe a little bit earlier than that maybe a thousand years before Christ but when it, was, when it became a written language and when people began to write Hebrew down writing was done on clay tablets with styluses that made an impression on clay tablets or it was chiseled on slates of stone that kind of thing there was no papyrus much, or at least there wasn't much and there was no such thing as pen and ink quill pen and ink that came much later so uh, I, most of the people in the world are right-handed, and that's with apologies to all you southpaws, but uh, most of the people are. And back in that period of time, uh, you can think about it, how, what would be the natural way to make a mark on a stone with a stylus? If you, if you right-handers try to figure, try, just try this, and you're sitting there, just try holding a stylus in your right hand and using your left hand to hit with it and moving from left to right, you will see how awkward it is. Much more natural to take the stylus in your left hand, use your right hand to hit it with, and move from right to left. There you are. and That's why Hebrew goes from right to left. <laughs> you all remember that famous line from My Fair Lady. <laughs> the Arabians learn the Arabian with the speed of summer lightning, and the Hebrews learn it backwards, which is absolutely frightening. <laughs> Some of those things stick in your mind just for, like glue. <laughs> so here, here were the Masoretes, And they wanted to fix the text, and they wanted to do a very good job of it, so they counted the consonants. And any Orthodox Jew today will tell you that the the canonical text is the consonantal text and that the vowels are up for discussion. And, but they, but they make dots and points around the consonants and it gets more complicated than that, but this is a, a pointed text. Now, the next thing is, we... I said there were lots of fragments of the Bible and and manuscripts and many copies. So what do you do? Do you you sit down and you create a... uh, In our situation, do you sit down and create... uh, Take a piece from a manuscript here and a piece from a manuscript here and a piece from a manuscript here? No, you don't. What you do is you take the most complete manuscript of the scripture that you have and you translate that. Now, interestingly enough, the most complete tra- copies of the Scripture of the Old Testament that we had before 1947 and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls dated from about 1100 A.D. AD. And it was in what uh, people refer to as the Ben Asher family of texts. There were families of texts, and most people thought that the Ben Asher family of texts preserved most accurately the tradition of the Masoretes and besides we had the most complete copies of the Masorete of the Ben Asher text available one was in Stuttgart Germany another one was in St. Petersburg uh, Russia another one was in Aleppo and I think there was one in the Vatican I know but this this is the Germans did major work on this and this is Rudolf Kittel who was at work at the beginning of the last century and this is the third edition which came out probably in the 1950s of Kittel's uh, Textus Receptus Received Text which is the standard Old Testament that people pick up to translate so what you do is you take the most complete and the best copy that you have you translate that and if you make changes in it you do it from other manuscripts and you do it in places where the text that you're working with doesn't make sense. One of the reasons that I'm saying all this is that this process is widely open to conjecture. Now, the main story is accurate, but somebody asked me last week about changes according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, scroll of Isaiah. Well, my text, which was done in the 50s, includes a, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, includes a third set of footnotes. There are two sets in every other book, footnotes, variations on the text. There are, and this one in Isaiah includes a third set of footnotes, a variants from the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, which is the main display of the book, shrine of the book in Jerusalem. Have any of you been to the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem? Some of you have, yeah. That's a holy place as far as I'm concerned. I've been there twice. The first time I went, um, this is by way of self-confession, one of of my goals, and I accomplished it, was to find in that scroll the place where the 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah in our Bible began. And I managed to do it, uh, not because I could read the Hebrew, but because I had an English translation underneath. <laughs> 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 Believe me, the Hebrew, the Hebrew was in an archaic form of Hebrew. It wasn't in the stylized form of this Biblia break. It really wasn't. It was, in, and it was a ballast but I, But having that English translation, I looked up and I picked out. And sure enough, there was no break. There was it, the. Uh, comfort ye, comfort ye, say the Lord. Uh, speak ye comfort to ye, Jerusalem. There was a there was no break in the text. There was a new line in the text, but it was it was a it was not any break in the text. It was a seamless text as far as that is concerned. I guess I say all that. I'm not a worshiper of the Bible, but I every time I pick up a copy of the Bible, I you know, I feel something because I know the labor that has stood behind that copy of the Bible. And by the way, everybody says to translate is to adulterate. Now, none of us—and I, and I include myself—reads easily Hebrew. Many, many Christians don't. Have we have we lost the story? No. But again, the labor of translation. Translation is an art. It is not a science. Do you understand me? How do you go from one language to another? I'll give you one illustration, and then I want to, I've got to get on to it. One illustration. Tense is the most difficult thing to translate in any language. Anybody who does any work with translation knows it when you Do you realize that in Biblical Hebrew, there are only two tenses? Action complete and action incomplete. Now I can't even think in those terms. I can't. Because I'm not brought up that way. And that's why, you know, Shema Yisrael, Elohim, Hainu Adonai, Ha, Hero Israel, The Lord our God is one Lord. Well, or, to take another, um, a more, the is in there could be, will be, Yahweh will be our God. Yahweh only. Or, if you want to translate that, or if you translate Yahweh is revealing his name yeah, yeah Asher, yeah, yeah. I am who I am that can be translated, I will be whom I will be, or I will become who I will become, because it's in the imperfect tense, and the imperfect tense means action incomplete, and that in our, in our language covers both present tense <laughs> future tense, future perfect uh, future active tense I will become whom I will become how do you translate that? Well, in my Bible and yours, there are a couple of footnotes. It said another way of translating that it is, it is, it is. How do you translate things like that? I began last week. If you take a look at that outline, I began last week talking about the Bible as God's drama for this creation, and <coughs> to fill in the blanks there. And I, and I said the the first act is the acts of creation. and in the Bible, it extends from Genesis one through Genesis eleven. And I defended that by saying that Genesis one through eleven is set apart and mm-hmm. by almost all people who read the Bible and read it reflectively, because there is a break in the uh, in the feeling and, the, and in the situation of the text, the situation of the Bible between Genesis the chapter eleven, and Genesis 12 all right and in that te- in that act I said there were two basic sins committed by all of humanity I, mean, I want to clarify that a little bit I said they were Eden uh, Genesis 3 the story of Eden the, uh, the story that we call the fall mm-hmm. and the other one was Babel in Genesis 11 the building of the Tower of Babel and I think I said, I hope I said, that the fundamental consequences of these sins, and I, didn't think, I, I don't think I got to this point last week, but I'll say it now. Fundamental consequences of the sins were and are alienation from God. That was the, that was the disobedience of Eden. <laughs> Oh, if I ever get a chance to preach again, and uh, (laughs) which which is not too likely, but anyway, you know, (laughs) if I ever get a chance to preach again, one, I think the text I'm going to preach on is God walking in the garden, saying, "Adam, where in the world are you? Do you know the story well enough (laughs) to know about? Come on, (laughs) God walking in the garden, and Adam." realizing now that he'd eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, figured out he was naked, and he wasn't really dressed well enough to show up before God, and he was kind of afraid anyway, you know. <laughs> so there he was, hiding behind the bushes. Now, you, you think about that for a minute. I love that story. I love it. But it's kind of humorous. <laughs> you mean God? The God who lives beyond this world, the God walking in the garden, uh, didn't, uh, didn't have enough kind of... Uh, You know, laser sight or whatever else he needed to see where Adam was. Where are you, Adam? Where are you? And believe me, if I preach on that, it won't be where you are physically, but it'll be where you are spiritually. Where are you in relationship to me? That's the that's the text of the sermon. Now you don't even need to hear it. I (laughs) appreciate (laughs) it. Okay alright you got it All right. now some of you might think well hey wait a minute Mike what about the flood that was a pretty serious incident there in that in that Genesis 1 <laughs> through 11 and you're right it was a serious <laughs> incident but the the situation of the flood was derivative from that first sin Things got out of control pretty wild, you know. Cain slew Abel, so we got a fratricide. That's not a nice thing to do. You really ought not to do that sort of thing. And you know, I can talk about that sin, but that was an individual sin, and again, that was a, that, that came out of that original sin, alienation from God. And then, the, then along, you know, things got worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally God said, I can't stand this. You know, <laughs> they're about to go over the edge. See, <laughs> I think I've got to do something drastic here. And the reason I'm saying it this way is because there are five different flood stories in the history of the ancient world that uh, that are all related, and they come from different cultures around Israel. And Israel's form of it probably it did some borrowing from other other forms, but the one thing, of course, that Israel's form of the flood narrative is that the others are not, is monotheistic. It's a monotheistic. There's only one God. Uh, Noah's a nice guy. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord, probably because the Lord could get through to him and tell him to build an ark. And, you know, I was brought up on Bill Cosby, too.
1: (laughs) What's an ark? Yeah, what's an ark?
0: And that's a good question. What's an ark? (laughs) That's a wonderful story. And we got all those... We got those... (laughs) three sons of, of Noah and, and Noah's wife and the three sons' wife got those eight people on the ark and they came stumbling off the ark and did what people normally do anyway you know, planted a vine and made a little whoopie juice with it <laughs> 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 poor Noah got roaring drunk, and, and life continues even. <laughs> and it, that, you know, the, what is the promise of that story? The promise is of course that God will not destroy the earth again by flood alright fine dandy I appreciate that um okay and then we go on and then then what the Bible says and if you take a look in 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 the scripture and I you know just to let you know that I can refer to the scripture on occasion when I without (laughs) without talking about Bill Cosby uh, (laughs) um if you take a look at Genesis 11, you see now the whole earth. This isn't we're, we're back in as if nothing had happened from uh, Eden to, Eden to the without Now the whole earth had one language and the same words uh, and a few words. And the, the, you know, one of the ideas for this fact that there are two sins came from a little book I showed you last week by Thomas Saz, who uh, wrote this book called The Second Sin. And Thomas Saz, who is a psychiatrist, uh, uh, or is or was a psychiatrist, said the second sin, the second sin was to speak clearly. Speak so people understand you. And one of the things that he says, uh, you know, he says things like this, and there are little epigrams in here that I love like this, language separates men from other animals. It also reduces them to the level of animals, as in calling Jews vermin and or policemen pigs. In the animal kingdom, the rule is eat or be eaten. In the human kingdom, now uh, get this, in the human kingdom, it is define or be defined. Who is the author of that again? Thomas Zaz. And you'll have to find this in the old books on Amazon.com. S-Z-A-S-Z. Thomas Zaz. He the... One of my favorites in here, and I'll just give it to you, a little explanation. We often call truths brutal and lies white. If language mirrors the soul of man, this Usses reflects the image of an aging Dorian Gray. And the reference there is to the novel by Oscar Wilde, The Picture of Dorian Gray. You remember the man who had a magic spell cast on him? And though his soul became absolutely depraved, his physical appearance never changed, but the picture did. So he hid the picture away until he, you know, until one day he couldn't stand it anymore and he revealed it to his priest and the priest looked at it in horror and knelt before it and all of a sudden Dorian Gray realized that there was now somebody in the world who knew the condition of his soul so he assassinated the police the priest by uh, killing him if we call truths brutal and lies white we got a soul language is crucial now what happened in Babel And what you have to understand, and you have to understand this very clearly, is that Babel is situated in the condition of human beings being alienated from God by the sin of Eden. So here they were building a tower up to the sky so that they would be on a level with God while they were alienated from God, and God said, that's not a good idea. You know, I better go down there and do something to prevent them from doing that because if they manage to do that who knows what else they can do like build atomic bombs and you know, don't think just ancient towers there's a hymn in our hymnal that I really love we don't sing it very often it's a modern hymn see. Um. <laughs> We have ventured, one of the verses goes like this. We have ventured worlds undreamed of since the childhood of the race, known the ecstasy of winging through untraveled realms of space, probe the secrets of the atom, freeing unimagined powers, facing us with life's destruction or our most triumphant hour. Every tower of Babel has a choice. Will it be? a triumphant hour or will it be life's destruction let me go back to the sin of Eden God looked at that and he drove he drove Adam and Eve out of Eden and put a guard at the entrance to Eden so they couldn't get back and do what eat from the tree of life and live forever estranged from God. Better that they die to this creation than live forever estranged from God. C.S. Lewis had the phrase for it, and I think it's one of C.S. Lewis's best, The Severe Mercy. That's the title of a book written by Sheldon Van Alken. One of C.S. Lewis's students, who, along with his wife Davy, were converted to Christianity under C.S. Lewis's teaching at Oxford. It's a beautiful book. And Davy, Charlotte's wife, died of a mysterious illness, and he he nearly lost it. But Lewis wrote to him, and, and attempting to persuade him away from his un- irrational and unrealistic grief said god has actually granted you a severe mercy now you'll have to read the book to understand that but that is what i that is the way i picture the judgment of death for the sin of eden now incidentally just to let you know the jews never put as much emphasis on the original sin of eden as we do sin in the Old Testament outside of Eden again which the Jews never emphasized sin in the Old Testament is breaking the law. specifically and most frequently it is worshipping other gods besides Yahweh Uh, they never (laughs) none of the prophets ever looked at any of the, the people of Israel and said you know you are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve they never did that not one not one when they said, "Thus saith the Lord," <laughs> they usually talked about the people going after other gods and about the kings going after other gods. That was, that was sin in the Old Testament. Now, Second Act, Second Act. So, oh, one final word about that first act. We come out of the first act with people, with humanity estranged from God and people estranged from one another again and that's the way the world is not the way the world was just pick up the paper this afternoon and you will read about it you know the estrangement from God and the estrangement from one another that's the way the world is now God set out to solve that how did he start he started with one man who became a nation How do you do do anything in this world without having some people together who make a nation and who make a nation under God? And God said to Abraham, Go from your, get this, native country, the circle of your kin, and from your father's house. In other words, set aside all of the three major loyalties that define humanity and go where I will tell you. Now, I, I am not a great one for saying that there is that one verse in the Bible contains the whole of Scripture as a matter of fact I will never say that but if there is any one that comes (coughs) close it is that (laughs) it is that first verse of chapter 12 Abram go from your native country from your circle of your kin from your father's house in other words you're going to you're going to be my man you're going to be my man and I'm going to come first That's all the way there is to it. So, (laughs) the biblical narrative, for the second act extends from Genesis 12 to the birth of Christ. Now, one of the first things that God did for the people who were born in the Exodus was give them a law. And there were two great laws, and I'm going to give this to you, and this is where I'm going to pick up next week. There are two great laws, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and I'm picking this up, but in Jesus' time, there were the people were always going around and saying, Rabbi, we can't remember the six hundred and thirteen laws that are in There are six hundred and thirteen. <laughs> Interestingly enough, by Jewish count. And just to let you know, I did my homework so that I'd have this here and I could give it. Six hundred and thirteen laws, three hundred and sixty-five of them are prohibitions, negative. One for every day of the year, all right? And then Maimonides, a great Jewish scholar, figured out that the other two hundred and forty-eight uh, constitute the number of bones and the number of significant organs in the body. <laughs> Alright, the Jews love numbers. They don't have to figure out a number. Oh, I'm serious, I'm serious. Maimonides was one of the great scholars of medieval Judaism. The Judaism and the medieval ages. And that's the way he explained it. So, you got that. so you, now, you, now you got it. They were always saying, I can't remember 613. And Jesus said, Okay, I'll give you two. <laughs> one of them is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Oh, got that. And I did it in the Hebrew. I did not include mine. It's Deuteronomy 6 4, if you want the text and it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind that's because the Hebrews thought the heart was the seat of thinking and they hadn't figured this part out yet by the time we get to the New Testament age the Greeks had and so heart and soul and mind and strength you you add that in the the New Testament alright and the other one was you shall love your neighbors yourself now, there isn't a Jew alive in Jesus' time or here. Now, they wouldn't recognize that first one. The, others, the other one coming from Leviticus 1918. You know, where in the world is Leviticus 1918? That's not on most people's nightstand for <laughs> general reading as you go to sleep. <laughs> or it will put you to sleep if you want to try reading about it. <laughs> anyway, 1918, it's an important verse. Now, why those two? I'll tell you. I did the research. There are only two commands in the whole of Torah, the command love. There is actually, a third one, also in Leviticus 19, and you shall love the alien as a man like yourself. But Jesus managed to answer that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. See? So your neighbor is also the alien who is among you. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but only to the command love. And they point the direction toward the solution of the problem of alienation from God and alienation from our fellow human beings. They point the direction. And what is the great verse? I put the key verse of the act of preparation. All of this all of this, from the time of Abraham, 1800 to the birth of Christ, zero. 1800 years is preparation. What is the key verse? Isaiah 40 three, which is anyone? <laughs> Prepare ye the day of the Lord. Make straight in the desert. I wait for our God. Act three next week. Act four next week. <laughs> I think <laughs> let's pray. Father, you have blessed us in many ways. And I'm conscious now of the blessing of the fellowship of faithful believers and that we have shared life together over many years. And that we can look at your scriptures and that we can learn and that we can grow and that we can understand and that we can think thoughts that are not just ours but yours after you. So bless us in the adventure of life. Help us to understand the great truths of our faith. And help us to live in the light that you give us, especially in the face of your risen Son. For it is in his name that we pray always. Amen. Amen. See you next week.